Hello, I'm Vicki Lawson. And I'm Sarah Elwood. We're the co-directors of the Relational Poverty Network, which is a collaboration among over 500 scholar activists and educators working on questions of impoverishment in the broadest sense. The network convenes conversations amongst people working in very different places around the globe in order to trouble taken-for-granted ideas about who is poor and why. And this podcast, titled New Poverty Politics for Changing Times, brings you a series of conversations between poverty scholars, activists, and educators. They think about how to keep questions of poverty and inequality front and center at a time when poverty is not part of the national conversation nearly enough. A foundational premise of the work is that poverty is always produced in relation to privilege and produced through multiple intersecting injustices. It's our hope that these conversations prompt you to think hard about questions of impoverishment and to collaborate with people who are working hard on these issues. Thanks for listening. The RPN is delighted to host this conversation between Nikhil Singh, New York University, and Maggie Dickinson, City University of New York. So, from what I understand, one of the things that they're interested in doing is thinking about, you know, we're in this moment um, where there's been this resurgence of white nationalism in this really sort of uh, abrupt way in the U.S., but then globally also, you know, we're starting to see these sort of nationalist movements in Europe and Latin America um, in the midst of what has been obviously a decades-long rise in inequality, Mm -hmm. um, deepening of poverty, and so I think my understanding is that the thought is to have some conversations to be thinking about people who are researchers. Um, you know, what are the questions we should be asking? How should we be asking them? What should we be doing, mm-hmm. right, in this moment? Right. Um, so the first question uh, it, that they're thinking about is, what are the priority research topics on impoverishment um, that we should be focused on in this moment? So. Well... I'll talk from my own experience and work. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to speak for all scholars in general or tell people what I think they should be doing as much as kind of describe what we've decided to do. Mm-hmm. Um, we have um, formed here um, a prison education program mm-hmm. at NYU, and um, we uh, not only uh, have a degree-granting college in-prison program in an upstate prison in Wallkill, New York, um, where we have about 50 students enrolled at all times. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also made a commitment when we started the program that we were going to work with students when they got out of prison. Um, so we think of the program both as a college in-prison program as a, and as a kind of community network. And the vision is, I think, the bigger vision that relates to the question is we're trying to think about how the urban research university in particular can be a, a, sort, of, a sort of hub and a place where um, kind of interdisciplinary tools are assembled to address kind of real social issues that we can kind of leverage both the space and expertise and to some degree the resources and social capital of the university to begin to um, to kind of really engage in um, in work outside the university in our communities uh, much more directly and much more forcefully and part of that obviously is about educational access which is why the college and prison program but part of it is also about um, opening up the space of the university to continued learning to people making social connections to people um, uh, developing their networks beyond kind of um, what is often typically a kind of iso- isolated kind of neighborhood experience, um, especially for people who are poor and who are deprived of resources. And I think that we've actually kind of begun to really see this develop um, mm-hmm. over the course of the last three years since we've been been doing this. So it's it's a it's a small program but it's mm-hmm. it's developing and, and I think it, it has the potential to be kind of a, a model for for how we start to rethink the university and its mission in the current Yeah. Moment. 
I mean, it sort of raises a question for me, you know, when I was thinking about this, like priority topics, right? I mean, at the top of my list, I'm always thinking about, well, we need to be thinking about public policy, we need to be thinking about the state, we need to be thinking about power. Um, my own research is on the welfare state in the 21st century. So it's looking how the <clears throat> at how the welfare state has actually expanded um, in the 21st century, but in ways that create these new divisions. So what welfare programs are doing today is essentially subsidizing low-wage workers, mm -hmm. right? It's kind of making up for the gaps mm -hmm. in um, what people are able to earn through work as a system of distribution. Mm -hmm. But it's excluding all these other people. And so this question of exclude I mean, we're obviously in a long period of exclusion. Right. And so much of the work on prisons has been sort of trying to think through how prisons operate as a governing structure that's governing inequality, that's governing, right, like right. growing precarity, mm -hmm. um, that's racialized. Right. And I'm sort of curious, because I think that work has been really important, and there was that this moment, right, where there was this thought, like, the, the carceral state is really being questioned, not just by academics, but at the political level. Yeah. Right? Um, and there's this move towards thinking about re-entry and, you know, these kinds of questions about what does decarceration even look like? And I'm sort of curious what you think about in terms of, as someone who's thought about prison a lot, um, what you think about in terms of questions around, you know, I guess for me the question is sort of like, I don't think we're going to move away from violence as a way of containing inequality um, given the politics that we have right now but there are some sort of shifting sands here so mm -hmm. I don't know that's just a open question of where you think you know sort of even as a researcher who's thought about prisons like where do you see those trajectories headed yeah it's hard to say I think um, it seemed like the reform trajectory was on a pretty you know, stable path. I mean, not particularly ambitious mm -hmm. in the in the Obama, the late Obama years, um, but at least it was going in the right direction. And there was a kind of sense of not only restoring some resources uh, for education for people in prison, like Pell grants, but also decriminalizing um, and and thinking about various alternatives to incarceration. Um, mm -hmm. And and I think all of that was somewhat bipartisan and the bipartisanship was enabled by a kind of framing that was about the kind of fiscal mm -hmm. pressures that that was bringing and you know that that takes you only so far obviously I mean I think there's a sort of a moral argument and a fiscal argument of course but but neither of those arguments necessarily take us down the road that we want to travel which is really about you know what it means to kind of think about the restoration of a much more robust vision of a of a social democratic kind of um, compact or uh, which we've never really achieved in the United States and we've always had a racialized welfare state and when mm -hmm. we tried to push the the boundaries of that to be for the welfare state to become more inclusive and 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 to deracialize it in a sense that's when we got the carceral state being mm -hmm. built on top of the welfare state and so um, and and so when you're talking about the United States in particular it's it's a sort of a you know, it's sort of always dealing with that, you know, that that sort of tangled history and, and how how we overcome it is, is you know, is, is kind of is kind of too big of a question obviously right. for us to try to try to tackle. But um, I do think that, you know, um, one of the opportunities that came out of that reform imperative you know, relates to the complicated structure of the American state. And, you know, the right has really used federalism and has used the kind of, um, the kind of, you know, the multi-scalar governance of the United States to its advantages, uh, to its advantage in all kinds of ways with, with welfare reform and other mm -hmm. things. But I actually think in terms of now this reform imperative, we have some advantages in being able to work at the kind of state and local scale. Mm -hmm. You know, and I remember hearing de Blasio talk about this recently where he basically just said, you know, we're just going to go right around the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I don't think that's ultimately entirely true because we're still talking about a lot of federal dollars that that are at stake right. you know in the kind of Pell restoration and things like that but I do think that that 
that there are innovative things going on at the state level in terms of kind of decarceration, in terms of prison education, in terms of um, thinking about reentry, mm -hmm. um, and thinking about a really fundamental commitment to shrinking the prison population mm -hmm. um, that, again, are partly driven by kind of fiscal pressures, but also are, are, are animated, I think, broadly by a sense of what a failure this project has been, both in terms of public safety and in terms of kind of the use of resources, um, and, and obviously in terms of social justice. So mm -hmm. I think th those arguments have gained a lot of traction, and there are a lot of different stakeholders for them now that mm -hmm. I think can allow, have allowed us to, um, you know, to frankly move at a university of NYU's size and stature, for example, to commit to prison education um, as part of what it's going to support, um, to use its to allow its degree to be leveraged for people in prison. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I think that's, I mean, I, you know, it, it's a contradictory landscape, obviously, mm -hmm. always, you know, <laughs> when we're dealing with these things. And, you know, sometimes one of the ways I think, um, social justice conversations work around, work under neoliberalism is to sort of say like we're 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 filling our justice mandate if we're dealing with like the the most oppressed of the oppressed you mm -hmm. know but but in fact we're not really addressing the broad conditions of precarity mm -hmm. that say for example people in prison are going to face when they come out of prison so yeah fine prison education but you know what happens when our guys get out of prison and they have absolutely nothing and they have debts and mm -hmm. they have family obligations and they have to find work and they're on parole um, and they have to sometimes get housing and, and, and New York City is a better place to do that actually than a lot of other places because it right. still has a kind of infrastructure for these things and then it's a worse place to do those things because it's so expensive right. and and then of course people are just you know they're just struggling immensely with absolutely no one to help them yeah. you know and so that's been the problem we've kind of set for ourselves you know what what can we actually do as a small underfunded organization <laughs> ourselves to to sort of you know again leverage some of the resources we have and to think about uh, what kinds of things we can do to sort of improve the mm -hmm. the possibilities for people coming out of prison i mean both in terms of their their opportunities the kind of earning they can have um the kind of ways we can think about maybe connecting agencies that are, are, are maybe disaggregated from one another and mm -hmm. sort of allow for a smoother passage, say, to moving from a shelter into housing mm -hmm. or, um, or getting the kind of training that allows them to move from, um, you know, a kind of, a kind of um, a sort of a temporary construction job to a, like a union wage job, you know, right. these kinds of things. And I think we are, we're, we are able to do that much more quickly than somebody could do by themselves because we're mm -hmm. trying to think about the the sort of systems that that they're they're entering into, um, and then the other thing that I think we've we've tried to do is to think about how, um, you know, and I know there's been a huge amount of work on micro enterprise and you know microfinance that has been, you know, been both lauded under kind of as a kind of as a kind of solution to to impoverishment and then sort of disproven. Mm -hmm. um, but but it is true that small small amounts of money can go a long way for people who have nothing mm -hmm. um, when they're in situations, for example, where you know if they could only pay off two hundred dollars in parking tickets, they could get their driver's license right. and get a job as a driver. Or if they could only pay off this three thousand dollar student loan they could then be eligible find for financial aid and go back to school you know mm -hmm. and we've actually really been trying to think a lot about about that that sort of microfinance side of mm -hmm. supporting people who are um who are who are poor um, and trying to figure out how to make their way in the city but then on the other side of that um how to um how to provide the kind of financial literacy that um helps people to avoid getting back into various kinds of debt traps. And mm -hmm. of course, that's what the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau was was actually starting to do in a more serious way under Obama. Another aspect of the kind of, you know, Obama incrementalism that right. was that was actually quite positive 
and had potential, and now of course that's been that's been shut down. But right. I don't think there's any reason why we can't continue to push that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, to think about what it would mean to like put the payday lenders out of business, the the the, the furniture rental places, you right. know, and to create other pathways that are at, that are actually scalable. Yeah. You know, in the city for people who 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 don't you know don't have anything. And I think it's actually the kind of thing the city government would be interested in. interesting because there's sort of two things I and mean, one is one of the most remarkable things to me is that there's been this sort of reversal where particularly with welfare reform that started as all of these sort of demonstration projects right all across the country in the 80s that eventually became federal legislation right and now we're actually seeing the opposite with a more progressive push so when de blasio came into office uh he did a couple of things immediately Right. One was he stopped um, enforcing the work requirements for food stamps. Mm-hmm. That was one of the first things that he did. But then he also put a legal aid attorney as the head of the welfare offices, right? The Human Resources Administration. Um, and they basically said, we're going to do everything we can within the federal constraints to get people as much assistance as possible. And, you know, Stephen Banks, who is the guy who took over the welfare offices, he met with all of the people who worked in the welfare offices. He told them, like, this is a different day, right? Your mandate has changed. Um, It was really like a ground-up process. Um, And it's been, I think you're right, that that there has been this sort of reversal where a lot of this stuff is going to be happening at the city level, at the state level. And maybe, you know, that's one of those questions that as researchers we can say, then how do we document this? Yeah. How do we like make the case that this is actually the better way forward to build momentum for you know yeah. a sort of federal program? Yeah, and it's really it, it's it's that's really well put, and I and I think it's really to go back to your earlier point. You know, the, the, you're, you're kind of arguing about the welfare state expanding. I mean, the state has expanded. I mm-hmm. mean, that's obviously one right. of the the great the great paradoxes of the neoliberal trajectory towards you know kind of market rule but Mm -hmm. like the state's sort of integument in that is sort of bigger and bigger and bigger and like and you know some have named like as progressive neoliberalism the effort to bend that in a certain kind of direction and have seen like someone like nancy fraser you know has been very critical of 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 the sort of the limitations of that project Mm -hmm. and i think rightly so um but on the other hand um you know what else can we do? You know, and I, I don't say this to sort of make a virtue of pragmatism, you know, but mm-hmm. I but I do think, you know, where we can bend things, you know, in a progressive direction and where we can actually think about, you know, um, I mean, I hesitate to use the language of, of, of war because war is so ubiqu- such an ubiquitous language right. in America, but we're in a war of position, you know. Mm-hmm. We're not, like, going to overthrow this, this apparatus. Mm-hmm. We, we're, we're trying to find places in, the, in, in our institutions, in our sort of, you know, the field of municipal government, maybe in the field of state government, you know, and then to kind of think about where we can, where we can get leverage and then where we can think about scale. And obviously, I think... You know, I mean, I'm not an urbanist per se, but I do think about the urban scale as mm-hmm. a very kind of productive scale for this kind of work because mm-hmm. we have, you know, we have a we have a critical mass of people and services and infrastructures that can kind of support the kind of collective projects that we have in mind. And I think if if people in cities and mayor progressive mayors and people who are actually trying to think about what you know start to think about how to replicate and and learn from each other, you know, we can potentially start to think about how we um, can can scale some of this up. You know, mm-hmm. when you think of the way like a right-wing organization like ALEC has operated for the right, you know, right. model legislation, you know, tried out in one particularly like sort of favorable area, mm-hmm. you know, then replicated. I mean, I mean, we have to be doing things like that. You right. know, we, we, I mean, I'm, I'm not one to sort of always say we have to imitate the right, but the right has been really successful in thinking mm-hmm. about how to leverage state power, well, right? Not to, <laughs> to, to go further down that road, but one of my favorite quotes is Milton Friedman, of all people, and he says that, like, to paraphrase him, 
in a crisis, the things that get implemented are the ideas that are just lying around. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So if the left doesn't have any ideas lying around, I know. what's going to get implemented right. is what is being staked out by reactionaries and the right. You know, yeah. and I think this is really when we talk about <laughs> this moment in particular, I can never really get past how good the right is at just like rhetorically moving the conversation further and further down this reactionary road, even if they don't think it's going to go anywhere. Yeah. Right? I mean, Trump just put out that thing about transforming food stamps into those food boxes. And instantly everybody was like, this is never going to happen. I know. But what it did was guarantee that, like, now he's sort of put the stake over here, so conversations about cuts to food assistance programs are going to seem much more reasonable. Right. I think that's right. Right. I mean, the whole language, the, the whole language that's now used to describe, you know, Medicare and Social Security as entitlements, mm -hmm. you know, when these have kind of been considered to be, you know, you know, these have been like tax-supported, you know, programs, right. you know, taxes on us, you know, not, mm -hmm. not you know, not redistributive taxes, right? Um it's kind of like they've already, like they've kind of won the battle, you know. Mm -hmm. It's like it's like welfare used to be, you know, aid to families with dependent dependent children. Now social security is welfare, right? Like how do you how do you get, and the welfare state just becomes one one bundle of things. That's why I do prefer to try to use the language of like social democracy or something. Mm -hmm. like we, we we do have to think not only in terms of you know the kinds of ideas lying around that we need to re kind kind of deploy and sort of experiment with and try to try to you know be 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 pragmatic and productive but also you know how to how to innovate at the at the level of language right. you know and and to sort of sort of repurpose and recast things ourselves because you're right the mm -hmm. right is so so good at doing that and they do have some built-in advantages you know and the built-in advantages relate to the you know the sort of the long durée of racism in the United States mm -hmm. and the way it's been sort of it's it's this kind of sort of field that can be so easily magnetized like now it's being magnetized around right. around migrants and the idea that okay. you can sort of just keep hammering away at the idea that you know there is there is sort of a continuum that connects the sort of you know some some kind of some kind of head chopping gang of like you know you know central american migrants that the ms13 scare and just like mm -hmm. the millions of people who basically are like washing dishes, you know, plucking chickens, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, sweeping floors, cl cleaning office buildings, you know, and have been doing so for generations just as kind of, you know, kind of ordinary, hardworking, kind of, kind of law-abiding people in this country working alongside the rest of us, you know, causing no one any problem, mm -hmm. in, in many cases paying taxes, in most cases paying taxes. Um, it, it's it's an extraordinary thing, you know. It's like they can just just and it hasn't been successful yet. The the anti-immigrant, right? I mean, it's. I think the GOP has obviously doubled down on being a racist party, you know, just as it doubled down on being a racist party, uh, anti-black racist party in the nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties. Now it's kind of doubled down on being an anti-immigrant racist party, mm -hmm. um, and there's always fuel for that politics in in american life and i and i think that's um that's a disadvantage we face and to go back to something earlier you said you know that that it's hard to think that violence isn't going to continue to be the kind of leading yeah. edge of policy particularly in a country where you know, the violent orientation to the world is so um, insistent. You know, mm -hmm. I always, whenever I, 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 I talk to my students, I always sort of say, you know, you know, King really had it right at the end of his life when he talked about the, you know, these, these, the sort of the interrelated triplets of racism, right. materialism, and militarism, and that they need to not forget the militarism piece because we tend to sort of bracket that over here, and they're a post-9-11 generation in a country that's been continuously at war. Isn't and, that amazing? And it's just con continue to ratchet up its defense budget and to, to have someone like Trump plausibly come along right now and say, we need to rebuild our military. 
This country that spends more than the rest of the world combined on its military, right. practically, that has you know a thousand military bases in eighty over eighty countries, that's involved in seven wars, that spends not only on the books more than any other part of its discretionary spending on the military, but off the books right. so much money that we have we have we have not even been able to fully account for. Like they talk about this being a four trillion dollar war in that sort of mm-hmm. that brown uh, that brown project on the cost of war, and you know it's like it's all hidden in plain sight, right? That's all just kind of... Right. And that's bipartisan. That's accepted. Oh, that that's, was... I mean, they just right. voted on a new yeah. budget and the Democrats yeah. got in line to, yeah. to spend more for for military. But for me, one of the questions that's always at the heart of that is also that so much of that is like a masculinist project, mm-hmm. right? And that, that seems like in this moment, um, that's something that needs to really be incorporated i think a little bit more in our thinking yeah to what degree that it's both a racialized project but it's also a very sort of masculinist project i totally agree with you that it's a masculinist project and i mean you look at the trump administration and it's it's kind of it's kind of a shocking revanchism when you look mm-hmm. around the room and you basically see a room of almost only white men mm-hmm. at every single at every single significant policy discussion the only thing that I would, I guess, want to maybe push back on a little bit and maybe think about with you, because I'm not quite sure how to think about it. I mean, my perception was that if Hillary Clinton had become president, we would have seen no no meaningful distinction in the realm of national security. Yeah. Um, And... um, and so in that, and, and that's, she's just one person, you know, but she certainly represent, would have represented something very significant in terms of, in terms of gender. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a way in which how we sort of develop the critique, you know, um, of militarism and the way it operates, you know, by recognizing the, the sort of, um, the kind of historical sort of uh, uh, masculinist and sexist prerogatives that have informed it, I think is, is, is tricky. Yeah. And it's even tricky on the, on the race question, because when you think back to the Bush and Obama administrations, mm-hmm. I mean, the Bush administration was one of the most racially diverse mm-hmm. administrations we'd seen in a long time. And in fact, right. it was a different iteration of the GOP. I mean, you had Colin Powell, you had Condoleezza Rice, you had Viet Dinh, who was like the kind of, you had John Yu, you had mm-hmm. Alberto Gonzalez. I mean, you had a real, like, little rainbow coalition there prosecuting the war on terror, at least yeah. as the kind of public face. And, of course, Obama, I think, did, as much as he wanted to kind of lower the volume on the war on terror, you know, really, I think, strengthened its its sort of architecture and, mm-hmm. and, and, and sort of allowed for a lot of its continuities and even its extension in the drone war. Um, so, you know, there is a way in which American militarism has come to have a multicultural face mm-hmm. and to to in some ways even embody a kind of um, a kind of a progressive um, sort sort of sort of sort of idiom yeah which is I think one of the reasons why um, it's hard, so hard for progressives to actually take it on yeah you know I mean I think <clears throat> I guess that's one of the and these are like obviously really long-term trajectories. Yeah. I mean, Kianga Yamada Taylor talks about like the black faces in high places, right? Mm-hmm. So that you have people who may look different, or you may have like women or queers or whoever being kind of put in these positions, but not really being able to fundamentally change the trajectory yeah. of, say, American empire, right? Yeah. Which that might be reasonable to think. Of course, a few people are not going to be able to kind of change these longer-term trajectories. But I think it's also a question of militarism being so at the heart of people's understanding of what the U.S. is, whether they're comfortable with it or not. Yeah, right. Um, and that challenging that seems almost unimaginable. And it's partially because I feel like, and this comes back to this idea you know, that we were thinking through before, alternative ideas don't seem strong enough to sort of contend Right. So one thing that keeps coming up in this conversation is this idea of redistribution. So when you were talking about people getting out of jail and they have these debts, right? I mean, you could easily wipe out people's small debts so that they could move on with their lives. Right. Which is just a redistribution question. Right. It's not even that hard to do. 
Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. But it is seemingly unthinkable. Yeah. The idea that we just wipe out debt. Right. Yeah. And so that's one of the things that I really sort of struggle with um, is thinking about how we do redistribution in ways in a in a place where that idea is been so closely associated with a sort of mm, emasculation. Mm-hmm. Right. So when we talk about the state and the different pieces of the state, and obviously, you know, you're looking a lot at militarism and policing. I'm looking a lot at redistribution and welfare. Right. You know, the pieces of the state that I'm concerned with have been totally feminized. Yeah. Totally sort of degraded. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. As legitimate projects right. in any way. That's and right. I think that has a lot to do with, again, it's sort of around language. Yeah. Right. It's like not just the, the racial sort of, undertone of the whole conversation around welfare reform, but also the fact that it was women who were receiving this help. So for me, one of the questions they asked us to think about are these sort of priority keywords. Mm -hmm. And for me, one of them is this idea of work, Mm -hmm. right? Because I feel like that's where this conversation around welfare has gone. If you're receiving something and it's not tied to work, if it's not tied to productivity, it's not valuable. That's right. Right? That's right. Um, it's something that's not valued at all. And so I think that's something we really have to challenge. I mean, one of the ways that I'm sort of trying to think through this is the ways that I'm an ethnographer. So the people who I got to know well, they were very, um, they were very interested in this idea of work. You know, I would sort of try to float ideas about what do you think about something like a universal basic income? And they were like, not interested Mm -hmm. and I was like really come on you know probing them a little bit to say like thinking this is a good idea and I almost universally got pushback from people who are very poor Mm -hmm. right yeah but what they are attached to is this idea of changing the idea of what work means Mm -hmm. so everybody wants to sort of rethink the the labor that they're engaged in as work that should be remunerated, right? right? Women want to be paid for caring for their children. Men want to be paid for caring for their... They want a recognition of that, right? So that there's these sort of weird undercurrents, these gendered undercurrents to these bigger projects. Agreed. And when I think about it in terms of the state, I think, you know, we don't even question question the military. Yeah. Like you were saying, in a bipartisan way. No one even questions it. But when we think about the other aspects of the state, things like redistributing, it's like it almost needs this cover of saying, like, well, if we associate it with work, then we can make a demand. I think the really scary thing about the current moment and the sort of the Trump kind of demiurge is the sort of way that sort of conceptions of social solidarity are being cemented through violence and exclusion or mm-hmm. imaginary that sort of centers violence and exclusion and that you know foregrounds the kind of militaristic kind of logic and, and, and things like that and I, I, I think you know um, when we think about intersectionality and it's kind of become a sort of a you know a kind of a buzzword even its own kind of denigration you know, in the current discourse or anti anti left or anti PC discourse, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think, I think the key, the core of that concept was actually thinking about how do we, um, how do we actually imagine a mechanism of really successfully widening the basis of social solidarity, the kind yeah. of social solidarity we we need, and by by allowing us to recognize the ways in which even our progressive movements have have these these kinds of blinders you know mm-hmm. so i think a bolderized and wrong and sort of sort of sort of sort of completely wrong interpretation of the concept is, is that it's about privileging the sort of the sort of um, the kind of the most abject you know right. or the or the, the the most vulnerable it's actually about seeing that what what the what the most vulnerable or the the position of those who are kind of excluded from even even those moments of kind of uh, that are kind of recognized as having a claim, say on 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 a stream of distribution or on a stream of recognition, uh, allow us to see is the ways in which our struggles actually get 
get sort of cut off from one another in ways that actually weaken the basis of what we're actually trying to achieve, right? Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, it, it seems to me that this was obviously, an, these, this has been an old insight of a lot of different kinds of, you know, intersectional politics, like Marxist feminism, or mm-hmm. anti-racist feminism, or, you know, what we need now is really something like a, you know, a feminist, Marxist, anti-racist, you know, sort of, sort of um, optic that can allow us to sort of begin to think of ourselves as um, not as single beings, yeah. you know, um, not as individuals sort of positioned in a world where we have to sort of transact with power as individuals, but as actually people whose, whose primary aim in life is actually to, to sustain and build the conditions of of, of collective living, of common mm-hmm. living, right? And so if we think of ourselves that way as doing that kind of work, you know, at the center of that is care, mm-hmm. right? And and the thing is, is so many people are doing so much care work, both remunerated and unremunerated right, right now, that it really could be um, at the center of a, of, a, of a real strong, like, reimagination of the boundaries of social solidarity, you know, right. and, kind of, and kind of what kind of society we want to be. Obviously, that's cru- that will be crucial, you mm-hmm. know, and that would be crucial to even just kind of beginning to suck out of some of the oxygen that now feeds the kind of military right. carceral complex. Right. And I do think there's a lot of there's a lot of people out there who want that or hungry for it. I mean, yeah. I really do feel like the funny thing about this moment, as awful as it's been with Trump, and as as much as there's a sort of sense of kind of this, these rising populist currents in the shrinking kingdom of Western prosperity, you know, all these places wanting to put up walls and gates and keep refugees out, keep migrants out, mm-hmm. you know, um, figure out ways to kind of hoard the, what, what's left of the limited, the increasingly limited pie. Um, that, that alongside of that, I think, is a, is a, is a, kind, of, um, a kind of a much stronger sort of sense of... Um, of the commons, you know, mm-hmm. and, of, and, and of kind of like that, 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 I mean, I don't, I don't know how to put this in a way that, that doesn't sound sort of Pollyannish, but, <laughs> but, um, but I really do feel that, you know, and I see this in my students and I see this in the work that we're doing in the, in the kind of the prison work. And even among some people that you wouldn't expect it to be coming from, that there are a lot of people who are looking at wh- where we've come at this moment and sort of, they sort of are kind of like, uh, you know, this really hasn't worked too well, yeah. and um, and we really have produced a society that can that can solve a lot of problems, you know, but has sort of become so distributionally skewed mm-hmm. and morally skewed, you know, that it, it's kind of stuck in a kind of death spiral, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, and that was like the old kind of Marxist observation at the core of it, right? That capitalism was a sorcerer that created all these kind of powers of sort of production and and and, and exchange and sort of long range you know sort of uh, sort of sort of networks of interaction but that had no control over the sort of the sort of the sort of powerful asymmetries that was producing in mm-hmm. in distribution in life chances and also in kind of in kind of like the the very fabric of our ecology right mm-hmm. and, and that's there in Marx too right you know and so I do think that there's a kind of there's a kind of moment now where we have the opportunity on the left to assemble a much more robust and kind of universalist vision. Yeah. You know, that that really is is embedded in the, the history of these different kinds of movements that we've been a part of in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um but that isn't kind of about um you know um well, I, I'll leave it yeah. at that. I mean, it's, no, yeah. I agree with you yeah. because, you know, when we think about, so one of these questions is, as poverty researchers, um, how would we resist these exclusionary trends? And I always think those questions are kind of funny because I was like, well, you know, I mean, you have to take it on some level. It's like, we are academics, yeah. right? Yeah. We are sort of limited in, and like everyone is, you're sort of limited to, to what you're able to do. But for me, that feels like the most crucial thing is to think about how to articulate different kinds of visions, yeah. right? And I think history is really helpful in trying to do that, um, you know, looking at different currents and trends that have existed for a long time and reinvigorating them and saying, like, actually, these other tendencies have existed alongside these very visible, dangerous tendencies that we're seeing emerge on the global stage. That's right. right? That's right. 
And I also think, you know, working with social movements who are really trying to grapple right now with saying, like, what does a different vision look like? You know, how do we get beyond critique but actually get to building something different? Right. Um, and I think those are places where, as researchers, you know, you, ha- you have this ability to sort of, like we were saying before with the idea of the demonstration project, Mm-hmm. Right. 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 <laughs> what can we do? Well, we can look at what people are doing, write about it, and you know, try to sort of translate that into. So, what would policy look like that would move us in a direction like that? Right? How do we change that conversation? And I also think with students, you know, I'm just I am a little inspired by young people yeah they're very they have like a very can-do attitude a lot of them yeah and i do think they have less they feel like they have less to lose yeah you know i think that's the world isn't the world isn't offering them as much Mm -hmm. but they're alive and they're they're smart and they're you know and you know the thing is is like people have been able to do a lot with very little at times especially at times like this you know Mm -hmm. when you think about it it's like um you don't need massive resources to do certain things. What you need is like, you know, you need the will, you need this, you need the, you need the, the collaborative ethic. Mm-hmm. You know, it's amazing how much people can get done when they're willing to cooperate, right? Right. right. You know, and work together. Right. You know, and there's so many things that are trying to think of, make us think about ourselves as kind of siloed and kind of in competition with each other, and you know, and that's tr- as, as true in progressive, you know, arenas as anywhere else. But mm-hmm. I think I think that's what we have to kind of keep, kind of trying to, kind of trying to break down, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and and it's it's a uh, it is it's a it's a it's a it's a ch- it's a challenging but also exciting time to do that. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's true. That point about people feeling like they don't have much to lose. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like I mean, the. <laughs> the structure of the labor market these young people are going into, the opportunities that are available to them, the idea that there's sort of some trajectory of long-term security just seems foreign to them in a way that I think when that occurs to them, they're like, well, fuck it. (laughs) Let's do something different. Let's do something different. let's, Let's try something different. You know, and I think there are some. There are probably some people in the among the very, very, very wealthy who also like really understand this. I mean, I mean the the, the there are these wealthy, very wealthy right wing billionaires who are like I think wreaking havoc with our political system right mm-hmm. now. The Koch brothers and the Mercers right. and people like that. You know, I think they're really. But I I really hope some of these kind of guys, mostly guys, you know, mm-hmm. sort of are kind of waking up and seeing, you know, that this distributional problem is, 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 is going to get them one day, you know, it's right. like, it's like just, you can't, you can't sequester wealth forever, you mm-hmm. know, you know, just like you can't lock up millions of people forever. You just can't do it. Right. You know, and, and they're never going to be able to sequester themselves from the environmental catastrophe that's unfolding around us, you know? And right. I mean, it's very easy to get extremely pessimistic when you get onto that ground, you know, the sort of the era of mass extinction, mm-hmm. you know, and my, my have a four-year-old, and, you know, she's absolutely fascinated by the ocean. You yeah. know, she, she loves, she knows, like, every kind of species of shark, and she's, you know, she says she's going to be a shark protector when yeah. she grows up, and, you know, it, this is just, she's just animated by it, and, it, and it's just like, it's completely heartbreaking, yeah. you know, to kind of to kind of think about how to, you know, uh, kind of match up her sort of fascination with the sort of, the kind of the world that we're actually mm-hmm. in, right? You know, with, with yeah. and the, the sort of state of the oceans. And But then I see that, and I have an older daughter, and I see her, and she's like, you know, she's she's only in middle school, and she's like, her, you know, she's she's completely obsessed with, like, industrial agriculture and like how messed up it is uh-huh. and like you know <laughs> pig farming and cattle farming and how like this has to be we have to put an end to it and we none of us can eat any of this meat ever again and uh-huh. you know and you know and it's like and of course it's like she's you know she's it's a moral yeah. politics right now but it but they're they're really i don't know they they i really i really feel very 
excited by younger people mm -hmm. and like what they're bringing to the table they're, they have a lot of conviction yeah you know and they're not as willing to compromise yeah i have nine-year-old boys yeah. they're twins um and i have been really impressed with um one this sort of shift i think in the culture from when i was a kid you know when i went to school the idea of bullying was so naturalized mm -hmm. so naturalized that it wasn't even a question i teachers sort of bullied young people um and they really don't accept it. Yeah. And it's not just them. I don't think it's just them and because I'm raising them. There's really a sense even among their friends that like that's just not It's not cool. It's not cool. Yeah. It's not a there's sort of a reach toward kindness. Yeah. I think. Yeah. That's really interesting. It is really interesting. And did not exist, you know. I know what you when mean. When I was young. I know what you mean. I know they, they it feels like there's it's a very paradoxical time in that way. It's kind of goes back to what we're saying. It's like we, I feel like we're in a, an era of like ever heightening sensitivities mm -hmm. to all sorts of things, you know, to the to the to the life of animals, you know, right. to the life of plants, you know, to um, certainly to the incredible diversity, mm -hmm. intrahuman diversity that we that we experience, you know, mm -hmm. incredible sensitivity to it and openness to it, and at the same time, a kind of you know, uh, this kind of threat of a kind of like like apocalyptic violence right. that's that's always sort of like like on the on the like it's like the other shoe that's always about to drop mm -hmm. you know like whether it's like your school's going to be like massacred or you know or the united states is going to drop a nuclear weapon on right. north korea you know and it's kind of like how do you square these sort of these sort of absolutely like extreme extreme poles you mm -hmm. know and i mean i mean sometimes the discourse around microaggression can seem really silly in the face of the macroaggressions yeah. that are existing in the world but there's some way in which we actually have to start to figure out how to bring the sort of sensitivities that have really been cultivated and are really valuable into a, like a much more of a kind of practical political mm -hmm. expression yeah. in the world not a practical political expression that's about you know again about resting at the level of microaggressions right. and the tinkering <clears throat> with sort of you know title nine and whatever mm -hmm. like, but actually thinking about how does this translate into a bigger politics right. you know like what 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 kind of world do we want to see right. you know what kind of movements do we want right. to see and when i'm listening to you talk about this what i'm picturing is like on the one hand thinking about stewardship mm -hmm. right as an approach like how do we steward both the natural world the people around us how do we act as stewards versus c control yeah right yeah and when you were saying before we're in this sort of death spiral mm -hmm. it almost feels like so much of what's animating politics right now is this desire to sort of control populations control borders control you know racial lines control gender lines that have been become more blurry and there's this sort of you know trump in particular resorting into saying like no you know we reject that but it's very much about control and and violence being you know how that's being enacted totally right and i mean just to put another little, little twist on it it's control on the one hand and it's impunity on the other right yeah. it's kind of like you know We've already had like fairly liberal like approaches to you know carbon polluters, and and now we're basically going to say, you know, even that little bit of control over them is yeah. like unacceptable. Like, do what you want, you know. Right. And and it's and it's a certain kind of way in which I think you know conservatism has really spun into, you know, something that's like quite abominably reactionary, and mm -hmm. it's and it's it it, it 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 wants it really wants now you know, impunity for the few, yeah. you know, and especially for a certain kind of man, mm -hmm. um, and it's usually a white man, right. um, absolute impunity, sexual impunity, mm -hmm. uh, economic impunity, um, the impunity, impunity to sort of, um, uh, to, 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 you know, to, to violate all kinds of, you know, right. regulatory standards, you know, that we right. might have kind of imagined over the many, many decades of the development of sort of progressive politics and progressive right. regulatory states. It's like all of that's right. supposed to be uh, leveled in the name of some kind of higher freedom mm -hmm. for these guys, I guess. Which is freedom also of possessing. Yeah, it's a freedom okay. to possess and dispossess, mm -hmm. right? everyone else right right um 
and then and then the control vision is sort of like pushed downwards. So, mm -hmm. it, you know, it really, I mean, I'm teaching about slavery right now. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it really reminds me of the history of slavery in the United States. You know, I mean, only about 3% of Southerners were slaveholders right. at the height of slavery. You know, it's a very small master class. Right. Right. Um, it's dominating you know, a slave population, a massive slave population, and of course, a massive poor white population right. that's being in various ways employed as intermediaries, but also mm -hmm. are s completely being screwed by this uh, slave-owning system. And, you know, it's like that's, some that's something of the vision, yeah. you know, of, of the contemporary mode. And I think mm -hmm. it's not accidental that we're actually... Um, seeing this sort of emerge in the United States in this in this moment, it really reminds yeah. me of something uh, kind of a recapitulation of an aspect of our history. You know, the sort of the sort of connection between public choice economics of like the James Buchanan type that Nancy McLean writes about mm -hmm. and the sort of the figure of like John Calhoun in the nineteenth century who was a sort of you know kind of the leading Southern statesman who was kind of a leading articulator of sort of states' rights and the vision of the master class. Right. I really think that these guys are, you know, they're fundamentally hostile mm -hmm. to, um, to, you know, to what still gets called democracy. And yeah. they're fundamentally hostile to any vision of collective governance that involves um, even a modicum of distributive equality, mm -hmm. right? Um, yeah. You don't, you know, and I think at some point that this is, there's no way this kind of, pro this kind of politics can succeed. Right. It's, it's either going to destroy the world or it's going to implode. And then we're going to be left with trying to figure out what, yeah. what to do. And that's always where I sort of think it's, it's interesting is that it's that middle strata who has been, you know, cultivated to buy into yeah. this idea that somehow this hierarchy is benefiting them. Yeah. Even if in only the smallest, slightest ways. Yeah. Right? So when yeah. you were saying before that there's this idea that we only focus on the, you know, the most excluded, the, to me that's that sort of population in play right yeah. are those kind of bottom middle strata where it's not really benefiting them right? right there are other visions of the world where their lives would probably be much much, much better, better. Yeah. right and that seems to me like yeah. a place where a lot more thinking has to go and it does especially in poverty research where people always want to you know focus on the the very poorest of the poor and it's right. like everyone is important and of course those stories are important but if we're really thinking in terms of politics yeah. you know yeah yeah exactly exactly so. should we yeah should we call it there is I that, think is so that good? I think that's great